0: who had recognized Paul and they said hey this is the guy he's the one that's teaching everybody everywhere against the Jews against the people and against the law and they believed that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple which would which would defile the temple because it was only for Jews to come inside that inner court. Now, Paul didn't actually do any of these things, but they hated Paul. They hated his message of Jesus, and so they were out to get him. And so they stirred up a riot, and the riot took Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and they began to beat him to death. And the only reason he didn't die is because the Romans saw the mob, and they stepped in, and they arrested Paul and took him into their custody so they could figure out what's going on and why are you disturbing the peace. And so Paul was arrested, and he asked the commander, and he says, Hey, do you mind, while everybody's here, can I speak to the crowd? And he begins to share his story. It really wasn't his story, it was Jesus' story. It was what Jesus had done in his life. And as he began to teach and share, and how he gave his life to Jesus, where he thought he was serving God and arresting and persecuting Christians, Jesus revealed himself to Paul, and Paul realized he was fighting against God, not for God. And so Paul surrendered his life to Jesus and then said how God had sent Paul out to share the gospel, share the news of salvation with the Gentiles, with the non-Jews. Well, that Jewish crowd there, they were just upset even more because they heard that word Gentile. And so once again, a second riot broke out and they tried to kill Paul. And so Paul was dragged into custody of the Romans, into the barracks. And then... We read last week in Acts chapter 23 in verse 12 where it says, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and they bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. That's how angry they were with Paul. That's how serious they were about getting rid of this guy. And so as they made that oath, it just so happened the Lord put Paul's nephew nearby and he heard their plan and so he came and he told the roman commander who took paul and ordered him to be sent up north to caesarea to the governor felix for a trial up there away from the threat of being murdered and so that brings us now to acts chapter 24 in verses 1 through 9 we read about the prosecution against paul Verse 1, it says, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So it's been five days. Paul's been in Caesarea and now his accusers, the, the chief priests and the Jews have come up to Caesarea as well, but they've also brought this guy Tertullus with them. He's a lawyer. They have brought an official spokesperson for them. And so verse 2, and when he was called upon Tertullus began his accusation, saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace, and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and find in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. The beginning of Tertullus's speech here in the Greek it just sounds like this. Right, He's just kissing up. This is all flattery. This governor wasn't anything fancy, but this guy was trying to you know, puff him up so that he could then throw down the lies that he's preparing. And so this lawyer continues in verse 4, and he says, Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us, for we have found this man a plague a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Notice the choices of words he uses to describe Paul. He calls him a plague, which brings to mind uh, poison and death. In reality, Paul wasn't spreading poison and death. He was spreading life as he shared the gospel. He calls Paul a creator of dissension, stirring up violent rebellions everywhere he goes. And yet in reality, Paul was peacefully worshiping the Lord in the temple and it was the Jews that stirred up the mob and they were the ones that were beating Paul to death. He calls Paul a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, making Paul sound like he's the leader of a gang. But I'll give him this one. Paul was in some ways a leader of the Christians whom he's calling the sect of the Nazarenes. The prosecution continues in verse 6, and he says, He even tried to profane the temple. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. And as you know, that simply wasn't true. We read the Jews' original complaint against Paul in Acts 21. You can see it on the screen here. In verse 28 and 29, they cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against all the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For, verse 29, they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. I already mentioned that would defile the temple, but this was all presumption. They just assumed this is what happened, but they didn't really know. And so, as the mob was attempting to beat Paul to death, the lawyer continues the story, we were just trying to uphold our law against this rule rule breaker. But, verse 7, the commander, this is the Roman commander he's talking about, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Imagine the story from the lawyer's words here, he makes it sound like they were just having a peaceful trial for Paul. And the Roman commander, that rotten guy, he came in and he started throwing punches and he had swords and clubs and he was just so violent. He was scary. And yet it was the Jews who were the violent ones. And so look at verse 8. The Roman commander was commanding his accusers, us Jews, to come to you, Governor Felix. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. So this lawyer, Tertullus, he was full of craftiness and lies as he seeks to make his case of deceit. History tells us that when Tertullus, this lawyer, died, he was buried 12 feet deep in the earth. Twelve feet deep, because deep down, even lawyers are good people, right? Okay, history doesn't tell us that. I made that up. But notice how the Jews respond as the lawyer finishes making his case. It says in verse 9, And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were were so, that they were true. So the rest of the Jews, they all put their stamp of approval on his testimony and his accusations about how Paul was a horrible person and he deserved death. Now remember that Paul used to be one of the chief priests. Paul used to run with the same crowd. In fact, it's likely that some of these guys that are accusing Paul now were his old friends that he used to serve with as a Pharisee. And for the past 20 years of Paul's life, as he's been serving the Lord the right way, serving Jesus, he's had a desire to come back to Jerusalem and share with his brothers, his brother Jews, who Jesus is. That he's found their Messiah, their Savior, and he wants to share with them his plan of salvation for them. And yet, they didn't want to hear it. Paul was treated with lies and slander and hatred instead of love and acceptance from his old brothers. You see, Jesus warned us in John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, where Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Therefore, when we are persecuted for Jesus, don't be surprised. And if you want to follow along by taking notes today in your bulletin, our first fill in the blank. If you are persecuted, make sure it's for being a Christian, not for being a fool. Make sure it's for being a Christian, not for being a fool. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 14, he says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. You see, sometimes we can suffer because of our own sins, because of our own foolishness. And I've been there, right? Sometimes I'm suffering because of the things that I've said that I wish I could take back or the ways that I've treated others that I wish I hadn't. And I suffer because of it. That's not the type of persecution and suffering that we're talking about. That's stuff that we've asked for by our own faults, right? But there are times where we seek, like Paul, to serve Jesus, to love God and to love others to the best of our abilities. As Paul tells us, to. as much as depends on us, to be at peace with all others, with all people. And yet still, we're persecuted because we serve Jesus and because we do things a little differently. If that's the case, then stand strong. And say, Lord, you took persecution for me. I can take it for you. And so, verses 10 through 21 now, we read about Paul's defense. The Jews have presented their case against Paul to Governor Felix. And now, verse 10, it says, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Paul didn't bring a lawyer. He's going to speak for himself. Verse 11, Because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So Paul calmly explained that their accusations were false. And he pointed out that their evidence didn't exist. They didn't have any. And then Paul begins to openly share the truth of what really happened. But we'll notice that Paul's emphasis wasn't so much on defending himself, but his emphasis was on proclaiming Jesus. Verse 14, Paul says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. So Paul confesses, Yes, I am indeed part of the way, a Christian, what the Jews called a sect of the Nazarenes. But Paul clarified that he's not an ex Jew that's now in a new religion. No, he hasn't so much left Judaism, but he's a fulfilled Jew. He's a completed Jew. You see, he still believes in all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, that first big chunk of your Bible. Paul says, I believe all of that. But they all pointed to a coming Messiah, a Savior, who would save all of us from our sin. And his name is Jesus. So I'm not an ex-Jew but I'm a Jew who has found his Messiah. That's who I am. You see, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Your next fill in the blank, Jesus did not replace the Old Testament. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And His plan of salvation was always the same. We can see the hints of it even in Genesis chapter 3. That God would send a Savior to save us, mankind, from Satan, from our own sin, and from death. God had a plan from the beginning. You see, it wasn't that Jesus changed that plan, but Jesus is the pinnacle of it. But the Jews, they rejected Jesus. They didn't want Jesus in their lives because, for the most part, the Jews were focused on their own kingdoms. They were focused on their desires and their comforts and their blessings. And as long as God didn't interfere with what they wanted in life, they were okay with it. But Jesus, He threw things up. He tossed dust in the air and He muddled the waters and they said, I don't, I don't, we don't want that. That steps on my toes. That takes away the authority and the comfort and the peace that I have. And so, for the most part, they rejected Jesus. Paul continues his defense in verse 15 and he says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. These, the chief priests and Pharisees, they accept the same hope that I have, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Your next fill in the blank, Paul explains that all people will be resurrected. All people will be resurrected. Death is not the end. But their eternities will look very different from each other. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The difference between the two groups is Jesus. Those who have Jesus and trusted in Him as their Savior and their Lord, they'll be resurrected to everlasting life. Those who don't have Jesus will be resurrected to everlasting death, what we call hell. And so Paul says, because there is a resurrection, because everybody will have somewhere to go after this life, Paul says in verse 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. I think Paul's alluding to Jesus when he said in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 39, it says, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commands. And so Paul says, because there is a resurrection, I want to make sure that I love God and I love others. That's my goal. Because I want to please the Lord. Now, Paul is going to share his version of what happened before the riot broke out a couple weeks earlier down in Jerusalem. Verse 17, it says, Now after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with the tumult. I was just there with a couple buddies worshiping. Verse 19, They ought to have been here before you, to object if they had anything against me. So Paul points out the Jews from the Roman province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. They were the ones who recognized me. They were the ones who complained about me. They were the ones who made all these accusations against me. And yet, where are they? We're here at my trial. Where are they to testify? Well, they're not here because they don't actually have any evidence. They didn't come. Verse 20, he says, Or else... Let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Verse 21, Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, when I said concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. You see, before Paul left Jerusalem, he had a trial down down there with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both hated Paul. And there as he was on trial, they weren't really listening to what he said, and so Paul recognized, well, the Pharisees believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. And so he stands up and he says, you know what, I'm just being on trial because I believe in the resurrection. And he turned his enemies against themselves. And they began fighting, and the third riot broke out. And so Paul says, I was guilty that time, right? that time the riot might have been my fault because I showed them that they hate each other as well as they hate me. My bad, right? But none of these other accusations have any weight to them. And so now in verses 22 through 27, we read about Paul's house arrest. Verse 22, But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, of christianity he adjourned the proceedings and he said when lysias the commander comes down i will make a decision on your case and so he says well let's wait for the roman commander in jerusalem for him to come up and he can testify but we don't ever read of him coming we don't know if he ever made it but as we read on we discover that felix wasn't really concerned with the truth he was really just looking out for himself. Look at verse 23. It says so Felix commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And so for 2 years Paul would stay in Caesarea on house arrest and he was free to have visitors. He was free for his visitors to bring him cheeseburgers and milkshakes and whatever gifts they wanted to bring to provide for him while he was there. Verse 24, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgments to come, Felix was afraid, and he answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. It's interesting here that as Governor Felix hears Paul's testimony and he hears the news about the gospel, the need for all of us to have a Savior because we've all fallen short and we've all sinned, Governor Felix was terrified. In fact, he may have been actually physically trembling out of his fear as he felt the burden of his own sin in light of the coming judgment. The Holy Spirit was speaking to his heart, but Governor Felix resisted the Holy Spirit because he didn't want to give up his lifestyle. Instead of making a decision to surrender to Jesus, Felix postponed that decision to a future time. And sadly, as far as we know, Felix never found a convenient time to believe in Jesus. Because when is surrender ever convenient? It's not. But his example... Felix's example gives us two reminders that I want to point out on your note sheet. First of all, because we have free will, we can resist the Holy Spirit. Because we have free will, we can resist the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Here Jesus explains his will. I wanted to gather you up in my arms and make you my own people. But he also explains the reason he couldn't do that is because for the most part the Jews were unwilling. They didn't want him. We read elsewhere about Stephen, a young believer who rebuked the Jewish crowd in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, where Stephen says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And you know what? The crowd there, they were cut to the heart by what Stephen had said. They were convicted and they felt the Holy Spirit speaking to their hearts and the burden of their sin, but instead of repenting, and seek God's mercy. They resisted the Holy Spirit, and they came upon Stephen, and they put him to death. You see, the temptation to resist the Holy Spirit exists for both Christians and non-Christians. Non-believers can resist the Holy Spirit by refusing or neglecting to repent and trust in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Believers You and I, we can resist the Holy Spirit by refusing or neglecting to surrender to His leading or to His correction in our lives. We, like Felix, might recognize the conviction, but we push it off for a future time. We say, I'll listen to God when it's more convenient. I'll make the right decision, but it's not going to be right now. Other times, we make excuses for ourselves and we say, well, it's really not that big of a deal. We feel the Holy Spirit convicting us about something we're partaking in and we're like, it's not a, that big of a deal. It's not like I'm as bad as you know, Lee or Don or some of those guys, right? I'm not really that bad. And we justify ourselves. Finally, still other times, we boldly reject the Holy Spirit's leading and we simply say, No. Not so, Lord. I don't want your way. I want my way. I don't want what you have for me. I want this. I think this is best. The second reminder we learn from Felix is this on your note sheet. The more often we resist God, the easier it becomes. The more often we resist God, the easier it becomes. Just like the forming of any habit, it can be hard to start but it gets easier each time. We hear the truth about our sin and the coming judgment, or we sense the Holy Spirit leading us to change something in our life, but we resist Him, and we put it off for another time, and we feel guilty about it. We feel the weight of our own sin of resisting God. But next time, when we resist again, it's a little bit easier. We feel a little bit less guilty. And the time after that, it's even easier we feel even less guilty paul tells us in 1st timothy chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 where he says now the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies in hypocrisy having their own conscience seared with a hot iron this idea of a seared conscious, conscience means they no longer feel guilty for sinning. They don't even have shame. But it's not because they're innocent. It's because they've resisted God so much that they've seared their conscience. They've lost their feeling. They're numb to right and wrong. What a scary place to be in. Grant, our intern, was in this very place where he'd run away from the Lord enough where he had no conviction and there was nothing going on in his heart as he lived selfishly for himself. And the Lord had to do a miraculous thing in allowing him to suffer to the extent where he laid down before the Lord and he cried out to Jesus because his only other alternative was suicide. Suicide. And he's so kind of so thankful that the Lord loved him enough to put him in that place because his conscience was seared. But you see, the more often we say no to God, the deeper that rut is in our hearts. And it becomes so easy to continue in that lifestyle until one day we're standing before the Lord and we realize, well, I, 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 I meant to get right with you. I meant to, to change those habits but it's too late and I just want to cry out to you and say if you're here or listening today and you've been resisting the Holy Spirit I just invite you to turn to him and say Lord would you forgive me God would you have mercy on me and would you change my heart because he will He'll take your heart of stone and He'll give new life into it. And He'll soften your heart once again. Therefore, when we sense the Holy Spirit's leading, the best time to obey is immediately, right away. Because I don't know about you, but I know my wicked heart cannot be trusted to find a more convenient time to obey the Lord. It's a dangerous game to postpone, obedience to god now back to our text in verse 26 we find yet another reason why felix was postponing turning to jesus it says meanwhile felix also hoped that money would be given him by paul that he might release him therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him like i mentioned earlier felix was looking out for himself by keeping Paul on house arrest indefinitely. Just keep on dragging Paul along, but inviting him to come and speak with him. Felix was hoping for a gift. Maybe I can see the truth of your case, Paul. Let's hear you again tomorrow. Do I hear it? Nope, not tomorrow. Let's hear it the next day. And he kept dragging him on because he wanted a bribe. Then he might let Paul go for free. But until then, it was a wasted opportunity. There's no reason to let Paul go. And so, verse 27, But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, favor, left Paul bound on house arrest. Two years. Now, none of us like to wait, right? But when you're stuck waiting focus on what God wants you to do rather than on what you want God to do. When we're stuck waiting, don't focus on what you want God to do for you, but focus on what God wants you to do. Paul spent these 2 years continuing to share the gospel, continuing to strengthen Christians any way that he could. The only reason Paul gets out of Caesarea in the next chapter is because he appeals to Caesar and is sent to Rome as a prisoner. We'll read about that next week. But before we finish our study today, I want to consider how Paul was anticipating eternity. How Paul was ready to be with Jesus, always living his life so that at any moment, if he was in the Lord's presence, he was ready to be there. Look with me again at Acts 24, verses 15 and 16, where Paul declares, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. In other words, Paul lived his life anticipating eternity. He always wanted to be ready to step into the Lord's presence. And that is the heart and the attitude that I want us to have. We want to be living in such a way that we're always ready to be in the Lord's presence. We don't know when He's coming back for us. We don't know when our last day is. So we want to live being ready. If we live anticipating eternity, we have three points. The first one, then there's an urgency to our work. If we live anticipating eternity, then we understand the need to obey and to do so quickly because we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. And so we need to be ready today to meet him. So don't postpone obedience. Don't postpone those things that he's put on your heart. Don't postpone the people he's put in your life that he's called you to talk with about Jesus or to invite to church or just to love on in Jesus' name. Don't put that off because we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. We have that sense of urgency. If we live anticipating eternity, then we'll have a correct perspective of material things. We would all love a bucket full of money. That would be great. But at the end of our lives, it's all going to burn all of our possessions, everything in this earth, is going to be destroyed. We read in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, But the day of the Lord, which it's not talking about a 24-hour day there, it's talking about the end, right? When the Lord comes back and He establishes His kingdom and He brings forth His judgment. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Most of this life is temporary. So don't let the temporary be your focus. I challenge you next birthday or Christmas time, you get all these gifts, you say, Thank you, it's all going to burn. Right? Maybe you don't have to say that right then, but we do want to have that attitude, right? We love gifts, right? We love things of this world, and God loves us and wants us to enjoy them, but we don't want those gifts to become more important than the Lord himself, because then those good gifts become idols in our lives. Finally, if we live anticipating eternity, then we'll strive to maintain a pure life. We'll want to live a pure life. We're not going to allow ourselves to be tainted with the things of our flesh and the things of this world because we'll want the Lord to find us serving Him faithfully. You remember that time when Mom said to clean your room and then she left for the day? And you said, God, all day. The whole house to myself, this is great. And then you heard the car drive up in the driveway. And your eyes got wide as saucers and your heart just sunk into the pit of your stomach and you realized, oh my goodness. And so you go into light speed trying to clean up the room. I've never felt that way, but I'm sure you guys have, right? And yet we don't want to be found living that example spiritually. Where the Lord calls us home. And our eyes get wide and our heart sinks into the pit of our stomach and we say, but wait, Lord, this isn't how I wanted you to find me. This isn't the things that I wanted to be focused on when you brought me home. I was going to get around to changing this in my heart, to changing this in my life. I wasn't ready for you to come back. We can all be tempted with that. And so today... Let's seek the Lord. Let's look to Him and say, God, would you give me that heart that anticipates eternity with you so that, yes, I can live this life, but I can live it for your kingdom, not for my own, so that I can live this life for your name, not my own. I want to close with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight And the sin which so easily ensnares us, throwing off those distractions and those things. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what the joy that was set before him was? It's you. me. Jesus didn't want the shame and the torture that he endured on the cross, but he was willing to endure it because of you and me. Because it was the only way to take sinners like us and wash us clean and bring us into the presence of a holy and just God. And so today, as we close, I invite you if you've been resisting the Holy Spirit or you've, maybe you're worried that you've seared your conscience, good news. Today can be that day where you turn back to the Lord and you say, Lord, soften my heart to you. God, help me to live for you. Lord, would you be my Lord and my Savior? Would you take me as I am? And Lord, would you please don't let me stay that way, but change me from the inside out. I invite you to make that your decision today. Whether it's for the first time you're saying, I need to become a Christian and be saved from eternity in hell. Or maybe you are a believer but you've just been creating a rut spiritually, resisting the Holy Spirit. You're even numb to His voice. May we just with humble hearts say, Lord, take us as we are change us and lord that's our prayer god as we sit here before you we ask would you take us as we are lord would you be our savior and our god thank you that you've paid for our sins in full on the cross you've conquered the enemy you've conquered our sin you've conquered death itself And God, we praise You that any and all who put their trust in You surrender their life to You. Lord, You receive us. You save us. You adopt us as Your sons and Your daughters. And You've promised us a place in heaven with You for all eternity. God, would you make our hearts sensitive to your Holy Spirit, sensitive to hear your leading and your guidance and your conviction and, Lord, eager to respond and say, yes, Lord. God, help us to be obedient to you. God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your love and your grace. And, Lord, we ask for your strength in our lives so that we can live in the power of your Holy Spirit not in the power of our flesh. Lord, we give it all to You. We give You all the praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Amen. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. If we can pray for you, then please come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Um, If you want to sign up last minute for that Tuesday Night Life group, don't forget to do so. And on your way out, say hi to somebody else and have a great week. God bless.